Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Elif Shafak on her latest novel... The Island of Missing Trees. Elif Shafak is an award-winning British-Turkish novelist whose work has been translated into 55 languages. The author of 19 books, 12 of which are novels. She is a best-selling author in many countries around the world. Her novel, 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and the RSL on Darcy Prize, longlisted for the Dublin Literary Award and chosen as Blackwell's Book of the Year. The 40 Rules of Love was chosen by the BBC as one of the 100 novels that shapes our world. And in 2021, Shafak's The Architect's Apprentice was chosen for the Duchess of Cornwall's inaugural book club, The Reading Room. And Elif's latest novel, which we're going to be talking about today, is The Island of Missing Trees. Elif, welcome to Little Atoms. Well, thank you very much. Tell me, first of all, how you would describe this novel. I think I would describe it as a novel that very much focuses on love, forbidden love, you might say. But it's also a story about a land that has experienced partition, division, and therefore it's a story in which intergenerational memories, traumas play an important role, the things we do not find easy to talk about in our families. So both family stories and silences. So it's a book about displacement, migration, but also I would say it's the story of a fig tree, one particular fig tree, which allows us to think more closely about what it means to be rooted, uprooted or rerooted. And the book is roughly split into consecutive chapters of third person and a first person narration. And that first person narration is done by that fig tree that you have just mentioned, who is a, people might say, a rather unusual narrator. Tell us something about why you did that. Well, it was a little bit risky, to be honest, because it is unusual to have a fig tree narrate parts of the story. And if it doesn't work well, it could be a big risk for an author. But I really, really wanted to take that risk. I really believed in, in the voice of the tree. And, and I'll tell you the reason why. I've been wanting to write about Cyprus for a very long time. It's an incredibly moving story. And yet at the same time, it's not an easy story to tell, the story of the island. Because we're talking about a beautiful place with beautiful people, no doubt. But at the same time, a place that has experienced ethnic violence, civil 
civil war, partition, division, where there is an actual partition line, as we're speaking right now, guarded by UN troops. So the wounds are unhealed. The past is not a bygone affair. It's still breathing in this present moment. And therefore, how do you tell the story of a place like that, of a place of division and partition, without yourself falling into the trap of nationalism, without yourself as an author falling into the trap of tribalism? And I could never find the right window or door into the story until I found the voice of the fig tree. Only then I was able to maybe distance myself from these um, different conflicting memories, clashing memories of Greek Cypriots versus Turkish Cypriots and take a completely different approach. And it's the fig tree that gave me, if I may put it in these words, that courage to do so. And let's talk about the importance of fig trees. I mean, everywhere, but specifically in Cyprus in in this context, um, both ecologically and through folklore. Indeed. I mean, of course, the ecological awareness is very important in this book. And in a way, the story tells us that wherever, whenever in the, across world history, there has been a war, violence of any kind, it's not only human beings that have suffered as a result, but the entire ecosystem, including animals and plants. And while some people might think it's a trivial thing to talk about the suffering of plants or the suffering of of animals, I disagree. I think they're all connected. You know, we're also ruining our entire habitats. Um, So there's a direct correlation there. But also metaphorically, in folklore, in storytelling, in oral culture, fig trees in particular occupy such such a crucial place. A fig tree feeds an entire ecosystem. You know, it's not um, the fruits of the fig tree are the seeds of the fruits are carried across miles and they help not only human beings, but many other creatures survive. So they're very crucial, actually, for our world. And it helped me a lot to tell the story through the eyes or through the perspective, I should say, of a fig tree. And you also talk in some detail about a method that's used where fig trees have been taken to colder climes to basically protect them through the winter, which I'd never come across before. So tell us something about burying fig trees. Indeed. I lived uh, in the past in America. Um, I was in Boston, then I moved to Michigan and then Arizona as a visiting scholar. I stayed in academia for long years. And when I was in Michigan, Ann Arbor, it was very cold. The winters could be particularly chilly. And I saw there that some Italian families, Italian-American families would bury their fig trees when the winters were particularly harsh. And then they would unbury the same trees come next spring when the weather was warmer. And that stayed with me. So when I started writing this novel, I started, I did much, you know, a wider research into this. And then I realized actually, it's not only Italian families in Chicago, in Canada, but lots of immigrant families, especially from all over the Mediterranean, who have moved to colder climates in western cities and towns continue to bury their fig trees. It's a botanical technique to help the trees survive. And that metaphor of burying and unburying secrets is going to be very important in this book. You mentioned about using the fig tree as as the central narrator, as a way to avoid any sort of nationalism. You're Turkish, but you're not a Turkish Cypriot. However, I wondered if to what extent, I mean, you are 
you know, I guess somewhat a, a Turkish exile, as you said, having lived in, in the US for many years and now in London. And I wondered how that fed into the writing of this book as well. I grew up with these stories, you know, Cyprus was very important when I was growing up in my family, my neighborhood. I was raised actually in a very conservative, in a very patriarchal neighborhood in Ankara, in my grandmother's house. So it is also part of my childhood upbringing. Um, but that said, of course, I am not an islander. And yet at the same time, I am someone who cares about the island, who loves the island. You might also say there are two islands in this book, not only Cyprus, but also the UK, right? Indeed, so, yeah. So this notion of islands, what does it mean to be an islander? Uh, this country has become my adopted land, and I do feel very attached to London, to the UK. So in many ways, I think I've been thinking about what does it mean to be an islander. I believe as a storyteller, you can try to transcend the limits of the self that has been given to you by birth. But you need to do that very carefully. You need to do that very cautiously. You need to do a lot of, you need to put a lot of love and effort. There has to be, it doesn't have to be your identity, but it has to be, there has to be a very genuine emotional bond. For me, if it comes from within, if it comes from the heart, that is a good guide. Of course, there's a lot of work you need to do as an author. There's a lot of research that you need to do, no doubt. But the primary motive, I think, has to be this emotional connection. I want to talk about some of the main characters in the story. Before we do, can you give us a quick reminder? The story, well, it's set over both in multiple time spans in the past, but mainly 90, early 1970s Cyprus. There's some sections in the early 2000s and then sections in London in, in the 2010s. But going back to the early 1970s in Cyprus, just remind us again of what the situation was there, what the political situation was there, what was happening. Indeed. And actually, I think it's also worth remembering that the story and the history of Cyprus actually is very much connected to the history of Britain, right, of British Empire. And so to me, it's very interesting and surprising to see that not many people know much about Cyprus in this country, even though it is an island that is among the top destinations for British tourists. And even and though, British soldiers, I still think, isn't it? They're not still British forces there. And it's an important part of, yes, military history as yeah. well. I mean, so we're talking about, a, you know, a crown colony in that regard. So it's not only Ottoman history that is connected or Greek history, but also British history itself that's very much connected to the island. But in a nutshell, what I'm trying to say is it's very complex. It's very multi-layered. Um, there have been ethnic violence culminating throughout 1960s, but especially in 1970s, which ended up uh, which ended with the partition of the island. But I also need to tell you that depending on whom you talk to today, someone in the north might tell you a very different account of the past than someone in the south. So there are these conflicting memories, accumulated grief. For me, what was important to understand or focus on uh, one of the things that I wanted to highlight was this Committee on Missing Persons, which is an actual committee operating under the United Nations today in Cyprus. And I find their work so moving, so important. Both Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots are working together on that committee, and they're literally digging the ground to find the bones of the missing 
so many people went missing during the troubles in Cyprus. And the reason why the committee members are digging is not in order to revive old animosities, just the opposite. They want to give the dead dignity, a proper burial, a proper funeral, but also the families a sense of closure. And the fact that these people are working together and almost racing against the clock, because when the eldest generation dies, there will be no one to remember where the dead are buried. Um, And to me, it's very moving because most of them are volunteers. Most of them are young people who believe in a better future than the past we have given them. So the story of Cyprus, I think, might resonate with people from completely different parts of the world who also come from complex histories and maybe troubled past. And you also mention in those sections, we find Daphne, that one of the, the main characters is in the early 2000s working for this organisation. And it's also mentioned that it's mainly women that are doing this work. Among them, there are many, many women. I mean, of course, they come from all disciplines. Among them, there are anthropologists, forensic specialists, lab specialists, also just young volunteers who help with the digging. When they get some information as to where there might be a possible grave or mass grave, they go and they dig. If they find bones, they send it to the lab. Until they send it to the lab, there's no way they can know whether that person is uh, Christian or Muslim or Greek or Turkish. And that's the thing about nationalism, isn't it? You know, when you look at the dead, can you tell their nationality? So the reason why I'm mentioning all of this is because if you allow nature speak, and I think nature speaks all the time, trees might tell a different story about troubled islands or countries because trees live longer than us. They're wiser than us. They have seen much more than us. So going back to the fig tree when writing those sections was important to me and gave me a completely different perspective. Throughout the book, there are there are stories of people who are missing, as we talked about this organisation that Daphne is working for to recover them. And indeed, there are certain significant characters in the novel that are missing. To what extent were these incidents in this novel based on real cases? I have been reading um, the, the works of the, um, the research, the findings of the committee for a while now. So some of the stories are definitely inspired by real tragedies. But also, I must say, not only in Cyprus, I've been reading into the exhumations, uh, about the exhumations carried out in Bosnia after the genocide. Um, there have been many exhumations carried out across South America, for instance, in Guatemala, in, in Argentina in Chile, also in Spain after the civil war, uh, more, more recently in Iraq, for instance, many people across the world actually have been involved in these exhumations, trying to find the remnants of the past, the ruins of the past, but also the bones of the missing in order to give the families some sense of closure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Elif Shafak, and we're talking about her latest novel, The Island of Missing Trees. And Elif, I said I wanted to talk about some of the characters, and we've mentioned Daphne, so let's talk about her first of all. Tell us some more about her. Yes, I think um, she's she's a Turkish Cypriot character, and, and she's very much in love with Kostas, who is Greek Cypriot. I think they are very different, not necessarily because they come from different ethnic backgrounds or religious backgrounds. They're very different because of their personalities. For Daphne, the most important thing in, in the world is justice, you know, some sense of social justice and human suffering. She wants to heal human suffering, but she herself carries so many scars and bruises from the past, as we will see um, throughout the story. Kostas also cares about human suffering, no doubt, but for him, the suffering of plants and animals, uh, trees, is also important. So they're different personalities. One is more fiery and feisty. Uh, the other one is more water-like. They they love each other, but it's not an easy love. It is a forbidden love, and, and they both pay a high price for that. And Kostas, that's Talk about him. Tell us something about him as well. Yes, he's a scientist and he's happier when he's surrounded with trees and plants. He has dedicated his entire life. Um, I have been fascinated. I've been reading extensively. And there's an amazing literature, especially in the last two decades, about trees. And yet there's still so much we don't know about trees. We do understand now that they're much more sentient than we recognize at first glance. But it's still a big mystery. You know, trees are so complicated and the way they connect and the way they communicate both above the ground and under the ground is fascinating. But one of the things that I was very interested in as I was writing this 
book, especially developing the character of Costas, was how trees that have somehow survived the trauma, you know, respond differently to the next trauma. And not only them, but their offspring, you know, the, the trees that have descended from uh, such ancestor trees that have experienced a trauma also respond differently to fires or, or droughts and etc. It's very interesting how memory is carried from one generation to the next which is an important theme in this novel. Indeed, it's an important theme in how family trauma is carried down through generations as well, isn't it? It is, and I think I have always believed in inherited pain. It's not; it's a subtle thing. It's a very abstract thing to talk about, but I think it is a reality. And I have seen, observed many immigrant families, families in exile, but not only them. Any you know family that comes from a complex background, maybe some troubled pasts, carrying some accumulated but unspoken trauma or memories that are still not narrated, expressed fully in the family. I've seen these generational differences. The first generation, the ones who have experienced the biggest hardships, they maybe want to talk about it, but they don't have a language. They don't have a channel to express those hurts and and grievances. The second generation is usually busy adopting, finding their feet, and they are focusing on this present moment or, or the future but they don't want to talk about the past. It is usually the third or the fourth generations, in other words, the youngest in the families, who are very keen to dig into the memories of their grandparents, who are very keen to ask the sharpest questions, the most important or difficult questions about identity, you know, what happened, they want to know. So I'm very interested in these young people who are eager to carry these old memories. Costas, as you said, he's a scientist, an environmental scientist. And of course, therefore, in the the latter years, he's obviously concerned with climate change. And there is a, a sort of central incident that happens in his childhood amid all of this civil war that is obviously also going on when there is a, a sort of mass die-off of fruit bats. And I wondered if that was based on a, a real event. The mass death uh, of fruit bats is based on a real event, um, not necessarily in that year in Cyprus, but in the Mediterranean, and then later on in places like Australia. I, I've been, you know, chasing similar incidents and reading about that, and most of it is, of course, related to human-induced climate change. As temperatures go up, we are, in my opinion, still not grasping the urgency of climate change and how it's going to affect our lives. And we we give very little thought as to how it's going to affect animals, you know, the, the very beings that we share this planet with. So fruit bats, from a human perspective, are not important, trivial, nuisance, from the fig tree's perspective, they are such important uh, beings. You know, they help trees pollinate. They carry the seeds from one place to another. So the, the fig tree talks about fruit bats with such love and care. For me, it was important to make that cognitive shift from human perspective to tree perspective. So we talk about Ada, who is... Uh, Costas and Daphne's daughter in contemporary London. She's a, a late teenager at school, and and when we first meet her, an incident happens to her that becomes something of a, a sort of social media viral sensation. Tell us something about Ada. 
Honestly, I think it's not easy to be a young person in this age at all. It was already difficult with all the challenges that social media has brought along. But now, of course, with the pandemic, climate change accelerating. Um, when I look at my grandmother's generations, for instance, these are people who have experienced lots of obstacles and hardships, but they always retained this belief that the future would be better than the past. That if you gave your children better education, their lives would definitely be better than your life. You know, the education was the key. I think fast forward, what we have lost in this age is that faith that tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday. So it's an age of uncertainty, anxiety, and young people carry that burden disproportionately. However, on top of that, in the case of Ada, there's an additional element which makes her life harder. She comes from a family with a very complex history, but a family in which there are lots of silences. Things are not talked about easily, and she wants to know, she wants to dig also, I want to add, we're living in a world which does not, unfortunately, celebrate multiplicity, pluralism. I think, you know, having multiple belongings is a beautiful thing. And as human beings, we all have multitudes inside, like Walt Whitman used to say. But unfortunately, the age we're living in wants us to be, to have singular static identities and boxes and, and to pigeonhole us. So someone like Ada, who comes from a multicultural background, is also struggling to find her place, her sense of belonging. When we start the novel, it's not giving anything away because we're told very quickly that Daphne, one of the, the central characters of this pair of lovers, has died. And very soon her sister, who she has not, well, who she was basically estranged from for many years because of the affair, comes to stay with Costas and Ada, her sister Miriam, who is the final character I wanted to talk about. And she's an absolutely glorious creation full of wisdom and proverbs. Tell us something about her. You know, I grew up with women like Mariam. I mean, my grandmother was really like her, but also Aunts, the, the women that I have observed. They are flawed characters, if I may put it this way, in the sense that they have their own weaknesses. Somehow they might tell you cliches. But at the same time, these women have an interesting wisdom that is almost carried throughout the centuries, very much attached to oral culture, oral storytelling. And, and these are women who maybe naively hold the belief that if we could all sit around the same dinner table, if we could only break bread together, you know, things might would be better, that there would be less hostility in the world. These are women who want to feed you and for, for whom food is always more than food. So for Marianne, there are lots of things she finds difficult difficult to talk about, but food is her language. And uh, I am very interested in how food transcends boundaries. I mean, in the Middle East, we have this baklava wars. The Lebanese call it Lebanese baklava. Syrians say it's their baklava. We Turks like to think we make the best baklava. And the Greeks say it's Greek baklava and theirs is the best. So the beauty of it is, of course, it's nobody's baklava. It's everyone's baklava, isn't it? So the way food travels, the way superstitions travel, stories travel, legends and lullabies, travel. I am interested in those things that do transcend boundaries and borders, even in times of civil war or violence or partition. And in that regard, I think food is always more than food. And finally, then, related 
to the idea of food, also central to the novel, in ways we, we, we won't give away, but we can talk about the inn for a moment, the happy fig, which is the place where Costas and, and Daphne clandestinely meet. Um, which it just sounds like the most wonderful place. Please tell us something about this inn. Indeed, it is a tavern. And, you know, when as, as I was writing this about this place, I really longed to be there. It, it is a collection of some of the places that I have visited, but also some of the places that I have read about, and, of course, imagination too. The tavern is called The Happy Fig, and despite the violence going on across the island in 1970s, early 1970s, inside this place, people celebrate love and music and food good food but also diversity there are people coming from all backgrounds not only in Cyprus but across the world there have been such places that have opened their doors and welcomed everyone equally places that celebrated you know our common humanity but also the pleasures of being alive you know life affirming and of course it is unfortunately um, bombed in the in the story i would, i won't say any any more about what what happens to the happy fig but it it's not an easy existence for a place like that to finish it off then can i get you to read us a bit of course so i will read from the very beginning of the novel And this is how it starts. Once upon a memory, at the far end of the Mediterranean Sea, there lay an island so beautiful and blue that the many travellers, pilgrims, crusaders and merchants who fell in love with it either wanted never to leave or tried to tow it with hemp ropes all the way back to their own countries. Legends, perhaps. But legends are there to tell us what history has forgotten. It has been many years since I fled that place on board a plane, inside a suitcase made of soft black leather, never to return. I have since adopted another land, England, where I have grown and thrived, but not a single day passes that I do not yearn to be back, home, motherland. It must still be there where I left it, rising and sinking with the waves that break and foam upon its rugged coastline at the crossroads of three continents, Europe, Africa, Asia, and the Levant, that vast and impenetrable region vanished entirely from the maps of today. A map is a two-dimensional representation with arbitrary symbols and incised lines that decide who is to be our enemy and who is to be our friend, who deserves our love, and who deserves our hatred, and who our sheer indifference. Cartography is another name for stories told by winners, for stories told by those who have lost, there isn't one. So I've been talking to Elif Shafak. We've been talking about her latest novel, The Island of Missing Trees, which is out now in the UK from Penguin Viking. Elif, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.